0: Where I do separate it, Joel, is, is if we go, right, this is your squat technique and this is what you should be able to do with your body. So we we'll teach you to pronate, teach you to supinate, teach you to flex and extend your knees, teach you to anterior posterior tilt your pelvis, make sure that you can have a pronating leg and a supinating leg and, and really get the brain experiencing that. And then go and squat. That's where I separate it. So you go and do your squatting, but when you come off that, we're going to make sure that you're, you continuously remind your body of how it, how it should move, how its opposition should take place, rear foot, forefoot, toes, pelvis, ribcage, skull. They've all got oppositional factors that are, are super important to consider. Most of them will get lost in the sporting environment. So we take them out of the sporting environment, make sure they're capable of
1: accessing it, and then put them back into the sporting environment. That was Gary Ward, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, in their store. That item is Exigen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exigen is a series of tight fitting sleeves, along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So, what I mean is, you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest. And you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights, they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from, on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it to recently, Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself, I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change, it's like combining technique with power and so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power and it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10-meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body and ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. Welcome to another show. Great to have you all here. As you know, I've been long interested in the foot and lower leg and its role in human movement. Really, since the early episodes of this podcast, we've been talking about the foot with a variety of different guests from different perspectives. One of the elements of the foot that I've been particularly interested in the last few years, and I'll say early on in my athletic and coaching career, it was to me, it was very largely about foot stiffness. How can we get the foot to be a stiffer lever to Better transmit forces upstream and that's certainly an important element of what the foot does but the foot is also a mobile adapter and there is pronation or yielding and supination or the the locking of the foot to become that explosive lever by which to push off of so we have both a yielding and then a bracing or rigid action of the foot and we need to understand both of those within the foot itself we have the forefoot and we have the rear foot the rear foot you can look at as the heel, the calcaneus bone, and the talus bone. And several years ago, I was able to finally rid my body of nagging Achilles tendon issues by learning to mobilize my rear foot using initially logging wedges, and then eventually I got Gary Ward's wedges. And those those wedges and being able to mobilize those bones have just been a game changer for me. From there, I've just been more and more interested in the rear foot in its role in not only the the injury prevention element of things and getting the calcaneus to move but also how does it fit with just general gait and running and jumping and looking at elite jumpers and looking how their rear foot works and you can see it happening in the shoe in a in a high explosive jump or what we see in various athletic movements foot stiffness is really important but it's also important to zoom out a little bit and look how the foot works as a whole in that oppositional mode and so for this show today we are going to bring on biomechanist and foot expert, Gary Ward. Gary is the author of What the Foot, and he is the founder of Anatomy in Motion. Gary also has the courses Wake Your Feet Up and Wake Your Body Up. Gary has a 3D approach to not only the foot, but human biomechanics and movement in general that has been transformative for me and many other coaches. There have been many coaches on this podcast who have been students of Gary's system, and his his ideas are definitely making their way into the performance world. Gary has been a two-time guest previously on this podcast, speaking on the topics of human performance principles, pronation, duck feet, and what that really means, and much more. On this show, Gary's back to take us on a deep dive in the concepts of forefoot and rear foot opposition, so basically the twisting and spiraling effects of the foot, and the role of that in pronation, supination, gait mechanics, and more. We're also going to get on how that fits into getting to the ball of the foot quickly and explosively. And again, uh, this is where we just get beyond just general stiffness and we look at total foot mechanics. Gary's also going to give us some practical examples on uh, checking if one's rear foot is moving and how can we get that moving. And check the show notes on JustFlySports.com for that as well. So, you can get that visual example. I know with just hearing this stuff is one thing, but being able to actually see it is definitely helpful. So, go to JustFlySports.com website for that. And we'll conclude the show by getting into some nuts and bolts of squatting mechanics in light of the foot and the arches of the foot flattening and rising and 3D human movement as a whole. This was an awesome show. I do apologize there's a few audio issues in the first 20 minutes, but the last hour of the show is crystal clear. Uh, Gary and I turned our videos off after the first 20 minutes, so just bear with those. And this is a fantastic show with some really cool nuts and bolts into the uh, function of the foot. Let's get on to it. Episode 261 with Gary Ward. Gary, it's fantastic to have you back on the show. I have some. I've been saving some questions up here for you, uh, and I'm really excited to get your thoughts on them. Before we get started with the the questions, though, I think it would be helpful to get a little bit of recap on um really like foot opposition and the forefoot and rear foot and what they are and how the twisting or spiraling of the foot works into human movement. So if you could give us a quick recap there, and, and lastly, I know too, it's we just talk about how hard it is to. Talk about the mechanics of the this complex joint without video, but I know I, I know you'll you'll help us through that. So, uh, if you okay. can start with that.
0: <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for having me again. It's a real pleasure to be invited back always on a on a podcast, and uh, it's always a pleasure to be asked to talk about the foot. So, where should we start the the foot itself is, as we've touched on before, is we're actually uh, trying to talk about a structure that is made up of 26 bones, which has 33 articulating surfaces that, that move in three dimensions. And that's the aspect of the foot that I've always tried to understand better and be able to explain and talk about. And, you know, classically, we have a rear foot, which I know is what you kind of really want to tap into today. A mid-foot and, uh, and a forefoot, and then obviously the toes. And, and we can't actually discount the toes. They're a super important part of the foot's mechanics. So in motion, which is my, the main interest in my work, is interesting because what I noticed is that in order to, to develop the movement or to witness the movement that we're looking for for a healthy gait cycle is you, you end up looking for this concept called opposition. And that opposition is taking place between the forefoot and the rear foot, and so I was able almost to abandon the idea of a midfoot in the motion conversation. So, anybody who's familiar at looking at a foot, you have the the rear foot is the calcaneus and the talus. Add to that the, the oli which is spe- effectively the tibia and the fibula. So that's your whole you know lower limb below below the knee. They're going but the rear foot is the talus and the calcaneus. In front of the talus, you have the navicular bone, which attaches onto three cuneiforms and then three metatarsals. And so that, that's the forefoot part of the uh, foot that articulates with the talus bone in the rear foot. And then in front of the calcaneus, you have the cuboid, which connects directly to the fourth and fifth metatarsal. And so the movement in the rear foot puts motion when it, when it moves, because we have these concave and convex surfaces. For instance, the talus has a convex surface that moves against a convex surface. Uh, sorry, a concave surface on the navicular, and so when the when the talus kind of dips forward, for instance, it pushes the navicular forwards and up, which starts like an upwards movement. And that's so rear foot down, forefoot up, opposition taking place in the uh, in the sagittal plane, which is when we look at it from the side. So the midfoot doesn't really have a movement to stipulate. And so I mean, we're able to drop that as a concept. In fact, if there was a midfoot bone, I would, I would say the cuboid is a midfoot bone because it articulates ever so slightly differently on that lateral border. And so out of all of the 26 bones, we've got one midfoot bone. <laughs> Otherwise, what we're really looking at is the forefoot opposing the rear foot. And it does that in all three dimensions. So or planes, depending on who's listening. And so the sagittal plane, we're looking at it from the side, the frontal plane, we're looking at it from the foot front so, or the back, so looking at the heel from behind, or looking at the foot from the front, up from the toes, and transverse plane looking, looking top down. So sagittal plane is going to see a calcaneus and the talus, which basically, if you can imagine the talus is kind of piggybacking on the, on the calcaneus, um, they're going to both move together in the same direction. And so in the sagittal plane, if you in order for the arch to lower, you would want the calcaneus, the the front anterior part of the calcaneus and the talus to drop down, which would bring a lowering in the in the rear of the arch. And so and that's actually, we describe that as a plantar flexion. So the the distal end of the bone, the bone closest to the toes, is actually going to drop down towards the plantar surface, will start to lower the arch at the back. And then the navicular and the cuboid. And the cuneiforms are all going to come down with it but the opposition movement is taking place and so the gaps in the joints between the navicular between and the cuneiforms and the cuneiforms and the metatarsals are all going to start to open up and so the lowering of the arch is actually an opening of the joints on the base of the foot and that in itself puts length into into the tissues and in our anatomy motion uh, rules we know that we want muscles to lengthen before they contract and that this makes this a really important aspect of foot movement is to actually be able to get into that pronation in the sagittal plane in order to lengthen the tissues, so that all the plantar fascia all the toe flexors posterior tib attaches down there quadratus plantai all the small muscles and they they're all going to get length here which is going to give them a stimulus for the brain to Contract that and actually create that supination that that is much kind of desired in the in the uh, in the therapy world. So, saying and agreeing that supination is super important, but in order to get it, we we better be really good at pronating our foot first. And so, to eliminate the idea of pronation has never been never been a useful factor in my in my eyes. So, the frontal plane. Then, if we talk about that, is where we're going to see our (laughs) mostly confused terms of eversion and inversion. And I'll, I'll kind of headline here that most people would describe a flat foot as everted. And eversion, as a definition, is where the, uh, the sole of the foot, if you like, is actually moving towards the outside. So in a flat foot, you're seeing the sole of the foot move out, the top of the foot roll in, and we'd call that an eversion. But um, one of the important factors that we need to consider when we think about foot movement is a thing called the tripod, which is the the first metatarsal head or the, what I call the big toe knuckle for, for the non-professionals and the fifth metatarsal head or the little toe knuckle and the calcaneus will create three points of contact on the ground. And that's the optimum amount of surface area that the foot can, can, can have. So if your tripod is anywhere else, interestingly, i.e. if you don't have weight through your first met, you don't have weight through your fifth met, you might have weight through your second and fourth met, and that would make a smaller triangle. And that, so the lesser the surface area, the less capacity for movement we have in that foot. Even if the first metatarsal wasn't on the ground and the pressure was through the big toe and say the fourth met, you still end up with a smaller triangle. So the maximum surface area we can have on the tripod is is, is also representative of the most amount of movement we can have in the foot. So hopefully what you get a sense of is if I evert the rear foot, which is to roll um, one way to feel about this, think about it, feel about it is if you stand up and you roll the pressure of your foot towards the inside edge of your foot, you will initiate an eversion in your rear foot. But if I take the fifth metatarsal off the ground and increase pressure on the first metatarsal, then the whole foot will have everted. And in the absence of, or oh, sorry, I should rephrase that. And in, in the event of that happening, what you lose is the opposition. So what I would like to see is an e-version in the rear foot where the pressure moves towards the inside of the rear foot and the fifth metatarsal is able to stay on the ground. And so for the listeners, <laughs> I, this is where we can use our hands. If you, if you put your, um, you, if you might kind of make a fist and fist bump your left fist with your right fist. And then you imagine that your left fist is the forefoot and the right fist is the rear foot. And if I ro- rotate, the right wrist towards i'm going to rotate it towards the screen so as a listener i'm I'm rotating my uh, little finger knuckle down and the big finger knuckle up then um, what you what you need to recognize is that we could call this an eversion movement but by keeping the left fist still can you see how or feel how you're actually creating the opposite movement in the left wrist fist without it moving And so if you imagine this left fist having the first and fifth metatarsal contact on the ground and the rear foot moving it still creates an opposite articulation in the uh, in the forefoot and so often if you if you if you are asking someone to bend their knee or pronate their foot and they're creating space under that lateral border of the fifth metatarsal it's an instant clue that they're not actually capable of putting a nice pronation into that foot so hopefully that's come across kind of clearly the, interestingly, the 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 front that frontal plane movement we're just describing is is actually more like a rotation. So, what you what you don't what you get is you get bones articulating with each other in a rotation, whereas what we described before is we had bones articulating that was creating an opening on the base underneath. And so, if you think about the spine, if you extend your spine, you're going to get a visual gapping on the vertebrae on the front of the spine and a closure on the vertebrae on the back of the spine. And that's a different type of movement to a rotation. When you get pure rotation, there'd be no gapping on either side of the, of the spine. It would be rotation, rotating about the, about the discs and the facets and stuff. And so that frontal plane in the foot has a very rotational element to it. And I think sometimes that's, that's where a lot of people kind of get confused, where we flip the frontal plane from the transverse plane from standing to open chain to closed chain and stuff like that. So it's definitely a factor to consider. And the final plane there um, is the transverse plane, which sounds like the rotational plane, but is going to be more like a a lateral flexion in the spine where when I internally rotate my rear foot, so that's the talus rotating and and the subtalar joint axis rotating round towards the big toe, the tibia rotating towards the big toe, then what you would hope to happen is, again, that the first and fifth metatarsal stay grounded and not rotate inwards with the rotation of the rear foot and in order to stay grounded at that point as we take back it must be the table foot out And, and that's actually known as an abduction and so it's been given a frontal plane term and that's because it has this kind of lateral flexion quality of opening all of the joints on the inside of the of the foot and closing the joints on the outside of the foot so if you imagine look a lot of feet that you'll have seen and that you work with will have that kind of compact lateral border where the fifth metatarsal and the cuboid are quite close together and the cuboid and the calcaneus they're all kind of bunching into each other and you've got that bow like banana like shape on the inside of the foot well that that's the transverse plane pronated if you like where the joints are kind of wide open on the inside so what we actually want is to put all of those three planes together think about them individually but but put them all together so that we have a perfect opening of the joints on the base in the sagittal plane, opening of the joints on the inside in the transverse plane and a a rotational articulation that doesn't deprive us from keeping our first and fifth metatarsals on the ground. And that will actually put length into the vast majority of tissues in the foot. There are very few muscles that are set up to pronate the foot. The majority are set up to supinate the foot. And that means that if we want to activate those and give those muscles the best chance of a supination then we need to be able to get into a good pronated place because in movement we really can't get away from the idea that muscles shorten from their optimally from their most lengthened position then that that in the foot that is that is pronation
1: that's a good explanation i actually have a few things to kind of uh, bounce back off you in what i'm thinking about that so one thing that i was thinking about particularly because this has been a big thing for me is thinking about as an athlete passes let's just say they're they're jogging or, or you could say even walking but you know as they're they're running and their shin is coming forward so the foot hits down and the shin is coming forward and people yeah. who especially like people who are heel they who are like heel strikers or just don't have very good foot function that's a very general term but their their heel stays on the ground too long while they're knee is coming forward and at that point where the heel should have been up and they should have been getting to the ball of their foot, their heel is like staying glued down or maybe that happens in, when they're trying to jump or bound or basically it's that person who just doesn't have that, that tension coming up through the foot and Adrian Barr calls it transitioning to a second class lever where basically the fulcrum shifts from the heel to the ball of the foot and Basically it's just you could say generally it's just being good off the ball of the foot, being able to get to the ball of the foot explosively when you need to. And yeah. something that I've talked with a few people about is that athletes who struggle to do that tend to have stiffness or tightness in that rear foot. And so as you were talking, I was thinking about, well, why, why is that?" And I think this is important because it's so easy to say, well, this athlete needs to have stiffer feet. They are not stiffer, in a, stiff in a good way, <laughs> you know, not stiff in a bad way, but they need to be more elastic and explosive off their, off their foot and get to the, the ball of the foot better. I do think there's people who have success in this for sure, but just doing things like isometrics where you're, maybe you're either in a elongated leg position or the leg is bent and you're just isometrically pressing on the ball of the feet and trying to be quote unquote like stiff. But yeah. Which is nice, but I, I feel like in, if the athlete can't mobilize the foot correctly, that there's a skill from flowing force from the back of the foot to the front of the foot. And when you were talking about the calcaneus bone, the, the heel bone, hafting to plantar flex and then ever, and that creates a stretch. Like yeah. To me, that's the big one because it's like if I'd never created the stretch when you know I get the, the heel strike or the initial portion of gait, and then, if I don't have that, I have to manufacture stiffness to get to that second class lever where I'm on the ball of the foot effectively. It's like yeah. if you never... So, that that is... I Because I've been trying to put that together. You know, these I've had other coaches talk about how that heel bone has to move. So, that's... You'd say that's like a critical part of uh, getting to the ball of the foot effectively and having the shin be able to come forward and the heel come up off the ground is... Is that why that is, like because you need that to stretch and load the tissue subtly uh, or it would be something else?
0: No, I think um, there's only one way you can get your shin forward and keep your heel on the ground for too long and that is to remain in a pronated foot position because as soon as you start to adopt a supinated foot position with the leg traveling underneath you, it's actually, it it wouldn't be possible to keep the heel on the ground and so one way you could approach this is i like to think about the body having strategies in place for something so it has a goal which is to in this case run (laughs) or jump and uh, it knows that it needs elements of movement but it also recognizes that in the absence of some it has to do something else more so it starts to look for the necessary movement and make sure it happens and and if if your foot doesn't pronate at the time it's supposed to then your brain will start, will, or the body will start, will continue to pronate the foot until it reaches mm. the amount of pronation it needs in order to return the next movement. So you'll likely find that when that heel does come off the ground, a supinatory movement is going to take place. It mm. won't necessarily be the supination that, that we dream of having, but, but some reverse response from muscle contraction or just the heel lift is likely to take place. So for me, you, your leg would have to be internally rotated. For your heel to still be on the ground behind you, and weight through the heel, so the concept of needing more stiffness or tightness in the rear foot is is correct because what we're actually my my interpretation. Correct me if I'm wrong, or if you have a different one, but stiffness is actually going to is is more the idea that comes along with having some muscle contraction and definitely going from. The, the mobile status of a pronated foot towards a rigid status of a supinated foot. And so when the muscles contract and, it, and the bones do the reverse of everything we just described in the opening section, you will get a rigidity in the foot. And, and that rigidity, if you can keep the first and fifth metatarsal on the ground, will always create an external rotation in the leg. The heel wouldn't be able to stay on the ground. The ankle would be plantar flexing and we'd be starting to look at actually getting good hip extension and hip abduction and, and the good stuff that comes along with that up at that up at that level so i think i think that's it i think the the the, the body itself is continuing to complete the pronation that it can't complete quickly smoothly and efficiently when it should uh, and that that's kind of what you, what you're seeing does that answer the question
1: yeah so maybe I'll, I'll frame so what i'm thinking based off what you said it's really yeah. To, to get that explosive normal uh, foot motion where i'm 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 pronating properly and then supinating you know getting to the ball of the foot and and regaining that rigid foot and getting off the toe of the balls of yeah. the feet effectively it's more about as with all things i think it's the timing so it's it's yeah. that heel bone everting and plantar flexing just enough to give me that stretch to then cue yeah. the snap back that that supination that's going to be happening yeah. Because it's just interesting to think though that people who, I guess if you have, I don't know, like I, why why these other coaches have said, I'm just trying to say, well, why is that? Why is that? Why would someone say that if you aren't ever, everting your heel bone or your heel bone isn't moving properly that you're not going to get to the, you know, the ball of the foot, that, that late rocker position effectively. I'm just trying to figure out why that is. I, I guess if nothing else, I just think, well, it's important to have that timing. You know, you should be able to have the good timing of the... The, the of yeah,
0: aren't, aren't, we are in agreement i think we, you, yeah. you, you are you do need to get that eversion and plantar flexion in in order to optimally get onto the the toe rocker of that kind of propulsed propulsive push-off toe-off phases we have a, a concept called joint act muscles react and that is that is the idea that i want to get those bones to go into the position of pronation which will put length into a tissue so if Effectively, the, the opening of a joint is putting length, length into a tissue. The tissues are there to protect that joint from opening excessively. And, and so as the joint is opening, the, the muscle begins to contract, and, and that has a decelerative impact on, on that joint. and starts to return it back in the opposite direction. So an eccentric contraction and a concentric contraction is the same contraction. It's just happening, one, in eccentric terms as the joint's opening, and in concentric terms as the joint is closing again back towards its resting center or into a, a new end range in the opposite direction. And so in terms of timing, the eversion and the plantar flexion that you're looking for in the rear foot should be happening the moment you get the, the tripod on the ground. So in walking, you, you heel strike into the, what we call the suspension phase and the, the tripod on the ground. That's your moment. And, and as soon as you get the, um, the pronation in, in place you then have, as the leg travels under you, a supination with three points of contact on the ground. And that's that foot is pretty much underneath you. And then as soon as the leg goes behind you, the heel starts to lift, but you still have a supination going on. So a dorsiflexion of, of the rear foot and an inversion of the rear foot. And together that creates an external rotation of the rear foot and then an external rotation of the tibia. And then finally you end up in the, in the big rigid lever position with, two points of contact which is the first big toe on the ground and the fifth toe on the ground and and the foot fully supinated so all the joints on the base and all the joints on the inside would be closed firm and your hip would be in maximum extension abduction and external rotation and the knee would be straight and that's that's what we're the the holy grail that we're looking for when working with somebody in walking and then the better they are at accessing that in order to access that, you you can't have a foot that's resting too pronated. So you start to be less pronated in your rest and have more access to the full supination, which is taking pressure off things like knee ligaments or plantar fasciitis or Achilles problems or or glute weaknesses or anything like that. So the optimising of all of that is what we're what we're looking for. The better I am at pronating, the better I am at supinating. The more access I have to this element of movement and and I think what you'll find is that they, they wouldn't be able to keep the heel on the ground for, for much longer. So I, I started that by saying I think, I think we're, we're kind of in agreement, and definitely the timing is a, is, a, is a factor in that. What you don't want to do is stay in that pronating position from when the foot hits the ground until the very last second it decides to lift off the ground, because you've kind of missed the boat then of getting your extensor chain to be fully
1: active. Mm-hmm. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs on the show to talk about uh, hypnosis and mental training for athletes. Uh, While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine. But I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shilajit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, for sure. So, I basically, if people who want to be, <laughs> I think that t- to be full circle with a good foot that operates well in propulsion, you can't just, I guess, you can't just necessarily do an isometric. You have to train like in, in the middle position, you would have to train the timing of that uh, rear footy version or the pronation to, to basically just be able to open briefly and then it's going to trigger the snapback. So I think yeah. we've both been in agreement that you're never going to get an optimal transition from the rear foot to the forefoot unless you have some ability to, to open the foot to open the the way the calcaneus uh, rolls.
0: Yeah, open the joints and keep the tri- keep the tripod on the ground. Keep the two, particularly the two toes on the ground through that. It's, it's interesting because we're definitely talking about op- optimal, but if you take, if you take anything away, if you, if you don't open a joint fully or you don't plan to flex the rear foot as fully as it, not fully as in at the expense of everything else, but, but see, movement is a really fine <laughs> concoction of, of, um, of different elements and a little bit of plantar flexion might be all that you need. It's not mm-hmm. loads. But that little bit of plantar flexion needs to put the movement into the forefoot. The little bit of extra sagittal plane needs to give a little bit in the frontal plane. And it has to be there to promote those, those two, first met and fifth met, staying on the ground. And if any of that is lost, you start to lose a little bit of, of opposition. And if you lose a little bit of op- opposition, you don't get muscles to end range. And then you reduce the potential for the amount of contraction. And so everything starts to shrink in terms of, of what's possible. And that starts to show up in, in other places in the body. So your hip might be moving less as a result of this. And then your back starts moving more. And then people start complaining of back pain or because one foot's not moving as well as the other. Like you said yourself, like you still have that left foot and right foot difference that, that, you, that you continue to work on. But the focus is in the industry is always towards the stiffening side as you say is always towards mm-hmm. the supination always towards the isometrics to create the stiffness but i, I really think it's time that we cottoned onto the idea and i'm going to use the glute as an example but if you if you lay down on your front and do like a, a prone leg hip extension where you're, you know the idea is that you contract through your through your glute to lift your leg up most people Contract through the low back or the hamstring. And third option is the glute. They can't actually shorten and lift their leg using the glute from a neutral to an extended position. And hence, our process is about wake your glutes up. If you've ever bumped into that on the internet, is that you have to take that glute into a position of flexion because that position of flexion immediately initiates the contraction of the glute. First, the eccentric contraction to decelerate the flexion, and then it converts. The isometric is actually when it's most flexed, and then the contraction returns from the isometric into a concentric contraction where the hip can now extend from a flexed position. Going from neutral to short is not as useful because the the brain can't do it. It instantly looks for help from the back and the hamstring but will never ask for help from the back or the hamstring if it's taught how to do it from from a position of end range. So muscle contraction is taking place from long back towards neutral, not neutral towards short. And so when it comes to the foot, then I think if you can grasp that, then you go, okay. so taking a foot from neutral and isometrically working it into short is the same. It's the same thing. You've not given the term that I like to use. You've not given the muscles no option but to contract. And that's what a good pronation does. It gives all of the muscles length in three dimensions, and that creates no option but for, the, for that muscle or those muscles to then contract. And a and contraction, of course, reverses the bones into the opposite position, the opposite position being the goal of the propulsion pushing forward movement. So that, that really brings pronation to the fore. Two things bring it to the fore. One is that conversation. The second is that 95% of the muscles in the foot are actually supinated. And so we have to pronate in order to stimulate 95% of the muscles. If you're just going neutral to supinate and the brain's not got, it's, it's, it's effectively able to cheat without giving no option. And, and so I, don't, I think it's a long-term strategy. So the pronation for me is super, super important, super, super key, easy to access. And, um, we just need to get past this idea that it's not, it's not useful or it's bad or it's evil. Um, and we've got lots of schools of thought that are still promoting that. I know that I know that you're not one of them, but (laughs) I I really think time that we started thinking that muscles contract from end range back towards neutral in movement.
1: Yeah, I know that'll really come full circle once we get to like the foot that actually is collapsed and what that, like, I think that's the thing that people will look at and, that's where the pronation gets that bag tag. So I I know we haven't really talked too much about that foot in our other two shows. So I'm, I'm excited to get to that one. I I did have an interesting thought and I've been working with a lot of runners lately and I, we do a lot of work of course on the the foot and I tend yeah. to notice um ever since it was like back episode 60 something on this show we had Chongji on the show who talks a lot about basically like a, a athletic like a tense athletic foot that that can lock effectively and you see a lot of like tendon activity in the extensor tendons on the top of the foot, you can see a, a tibialis tendon that is able to activate and be tense as well. And I look at the athletes who just don't have any of that activity and don't really have very active feet when they run and, and I have them doing some drills. I, I noticed that they tend to very easily if we're like just having them feel different parts of their feet, they're ball of the pinky toe will come off the ground and their foot just operates as one big like ship rolling as rolling on the sea as one piece and versus the athletes who tend to have more activity, they, they do tend to keep those met heads, the balls of the feet on the ground fully where it's almost like part of me wonders, is it the chicken or the egg too? Do some of these athletes just not have any sensation in their feet? They don't know if their foot's on the ground or if it isn't. Yeah. It's just kind yeah. of rolling around aimlessly. As, yeah as awareness
0: go. yeah awareness in the feet is, is a big thing I, I I always go back to the i once asked the question how many bones in the foot to a group of they young personal trainers and and this really excited person said two and i said oh that's interesting what are they and she said the foot and ankle <laughs> <laughs> um, but to, to an unknown person that might be what you think it is like we, we you've not looked at an x-ray you don't know who the the people sometimes are fascinated to see what that thing looks like under the hood put it in their hands and wow you know and so if you don't have the awareness and you don't have the understanding uh, it's just this thing that that operates like a lever pushes us forward that we land on and take it for complete granted and and athletes are doing that as well so education knowledge and insight is, is definitely going to help that awareness
1: for sure. What do you think, Gary, about – because I think this will be important as we go along as well, at least or at least for the rear foot stuff and probably for the collapsed foot as well, but the idea of, like, walking speeds versus running speeds, like, basically the shorter mm-hmm. the ground contact, like, all the motions have to just be smaller and faster, don't they? Like, you're not going to be able to take, like, the foot mm-hmm. to its total range if you're doing, like, a little quick jab or a, a sprint step on the – like, how, what are your thoughts on how that changes this? Yeah we start to speed up or the forces change.
0: You're absolutely right. My thoughts go towards, you do need to pronate and supinate th- through the run. That would be, you need it to push on a pedal, right? In a, on, if you're cycling, you need it in a ski boot, you need it in a golf swing. All of them to potentially different levels unique to the requirement of the of the movement or task in hand. The thing that really interests me is, is actually is is probably not how much the pronation is, but actually the quality of the pronation. And the quality Mm -hmm. of the pronation will always be most optimal when the foot has a resting position of neutral. So anybody who doesn't have that position of neutral is always going to have pronation and supination compromised to some extent. But I call that resting neutral center, I call it the holy grail. That's what we're all striving for if we're really into, into movement and optimization and efficiency. And so if we take the idea of somebody having a perfectly neutral foot, that foot, when, when running, will be able to move ever so slightly to the inside, which is a pronation movement in three dimensions, and then ever so slightly to the outside, which is a, pron- a supination movement in three dimensions, and then get the most out of their hip. Now, if, somebody, if that foot is resting, fully inside with a, uh, not, I don't know what your question about collapsed foot is, but so not a collapsed foot, but just resting um, pronated, then there may be an element of supination that that takes place in that foot. So when it hits the ground, it pronates a little bit more from its resting pronated position and then supinates a little bit either to the other side of its resting position, but not actually further than neutral. So the most supinated that person gets is actually a neutral position, which means that the hip will only get neutral position. So the hip is now going to spend all its time from internal to neutral and not be able to experience its full range of movement. Somebody who's supinated, they, they're going to start with resting a little bit to the outside. When they hit the ground, hopefully they'll pronate a little bit and then they'll supinate a little bit, but, but they'll never really experience any movement on the inside of the neutral part of Pronation. and so that then the whole thing is compromised. Something else is looking to do the work make up for the lack that's happening down in the foot. So yes, when we're running we're going to use probably less. but I also want to underline that the movement is not big. so even when you're walking, if you were to have a perfectly neutral foot in the in the land of holy grail optimised anatomy, you still would only move a little bit to the inside and a little bit to the outside of that neutral line. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the side bend, as it improves, movement gets quieter. You, you start to see it less. But where movement is compromised and there are gross imbalances in place, they really stand out, and that's because they're they're moving in the wrong in the wrong regions. So it becomes visible, and movement gets quieter. Better it is, and I think that's really important that that we take into account that movement is small. So even a full pronation is not a big movement. It's big by virtue of the number of joints taking place in that movement but, but actually visually it's it's pretty small so at greater speeds obviously then that has to be less and so the better it will be will be around the resting position and that's really what interests me more than more than much anything else actually
1: i think about it in the sense of like if we want to show like pronation and supination we can take an athlete or an individual into the i guess you the extreme joint range that depicts a full a full pronation. Like you could get into like the front leg and the lunge, putting the knee over the big toe and letting the arch flatten as much as you could and and just that yeah. full and but that's not you're not gonna get there and running. Like it's just it's like you said it's a sm it's small it's still there, but it's yeah. much, much, much smaller. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten to the point where, especially in thinking about this stuff, and I think you you, you mentioned too, like you know, the strength and conditioning industry very uh, as an industry, it's very, you know, there's yin and yang, there's there's soft and hard and there's force and there's yielding and the strength and conditioning yeah. industry is very force and and resist. And I get yeah. it. And I feel like people who have the joint motion capabilities it, pre-existing can do that stuff that and be totally fine. But I think it's just, it, but if you have a joint motion liability and you do that stuff, you're kind of, you're just going to kind of have to work on top of your compensation harder. And so um, I'm trying to remember where I was going with this, with the small motions. Oh yeah, with all this stuff. And and I'd like to get ask you actually here about well, how do what do we do about the rear foot if it's stiff? But I've definitely gotten towards the just doing smaller motions, like just smaller subtle motions in a lot of things. I mean, I I do agree with do taking things to full, but especially when an athlete has like a movement, like they just can't figure out how to get elastic in a certain movement. Really taking it to that that couple inch range. Where that critical motion is needed and just doing tons and tons of repetitions there, getting them to feel the joint opening or trying to feel the transition of the ball of the foot in that small range versus because then they get a lot of chances at it versus you do things you, yeah. So I hope that makes sense with what I'm yeah,
0: saying. Yeah, I just like I there's a something I like to be careful because I know that some people will do stuff, listen to stuff and then go and try it, and rightly so. And so there are parameters put in and when I say be careful, a, a pronation has to have the concept of the tripod attached to it because if you, um, so when you were describing putting somebody forward with a, with a, a leg forward and, and going into a lunge, and you, you maybe use wedges or whatever to get as much opening as you can on those inside tissues, on those inside joints, lengthening those inside tissues. The thing to be aware of is that if, if in the quest for that, the person loses the fifth metatarsal then you're no longer pronating the foot. You're actually encouraging a, an adapted movement. And that's not the one you want to teach. It's probably the one they already use. And so we don't want to waste our time. And, and so if you're able to ensure that anytime you pronate a foot, all of the boxes are being ticked for that, then interestingly, the amount of movement that you go into will be less. Because to do more is, at, is going to be at the cost of the tripod. And so you can get the most pronation, but it has to be inside the restraints of the tripod being kept on the ground. And that's what, that's what actually manages it. And I struggle then with words like overpronation, because actually you can't overpronate. Once you go past the point of the tripod, if you lose the fifth metatarsal, I'm confident to say you're not pronating anymore. And the reason I'm confident to say you're not pronating anymore is because now the fifth metatarsals come up, the forefoot. Is everting along with the rear foot, which means there's no opposition taking place in the foot. And that's one of the rules for maximizing pronation. So none of the tissues are lengthening anymore. You've gone to a point where you think you're doing well, but you've actually stopped the joints from opening, stopped the tissue from lengthening. And so you have to go back to the rule of keeping the tripod on the ground so you can maximize that experience, which is always only small. And so you see loads of foot stuff uh, all over the internet. And, Wedges of different sizes and inside edge and outside edge. And, and you look. I'm looking at feet going, well, the foot's not actually doing anything. It's not supinating. It's not pronating. It's just being used as a brick, which is probably how the person walks to the bus stop mm-hmm. anyway, using it as a brick without any movement in it. So the goal is really to help people, one, understand the mechanics of it, two, be considerate of, of the restraints and rules around pronation, and then actually get the best out of it. Because there's a hell of a lot of time wasted effort going on uh, from the things that I see.
1: Yeah, that's it's an interesting perspective to think. It's not, it's not so much, uh, you know, we'll set, we'll we'll list different um, like symptoms, like you're over pronating, right? But at the end of the day, it's just you're not creating opposition. You're just not you. Yeah. You're just not able to harness the twisting power that's within the foot on your on your. Yeah, uh, it's a nice way of putting
0: it. it. You're not moving the foot to. Yeah. <laughs> Once you're not moving the foot, you're not moving it at all, at which point, what are do you doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, I see that even too with athletes who like they have a good squat, but they just can't, they just can't don't really have that pop or that crack off the ground in a jump. And it's usually like their foot's just stuck in kind of supination because that's how they've squatted. And even, you know, if I have them doing toe bridging exercises, I don't like to say toe curls because that I don't like to encourage toe gripping, but just bridging and just getting, you know, the met head set it's still done in the context of supination with these athletes who have been like lifting uh, for so much. Yeah. And it's just interesting yeah. to see that there's, they've just created a very one-sided uh, or one dimensional aspect to how the foot is, is working. You're just not, they're just not creating twisting in it and, and being able to harness that, I guess, the flow of energy throughout the foot, right? You have to have, to have a flow of energy, you have to have two opposition, you have to have opposition, you have to have two different poles. And so, otherwise, you're yeah. just kind of, you're skipping that.
0: Yeah, and you need to have changes in in areas of pressure. You you need to have sensation. You need to have contact change. You need to have bones moving. And it's ridiculously uh, easy to to not do anything. Actually, yes, yes. Um, definitely it's really easy. hard. And then in the absence of any of of if you're if you're doing a whole body movement and your the foot's not engaged, then there's 33 joints worth of movement in three dimensions doing very little and for which somewhere else in the body has to make that up. So then you you get that's where people start having excess movements in pelvis or hips or knees, Mm -hmm. um, back, even neck and shoulders to to make up for it. So if you are going to do a whole body movement and you are interested in that, then you are better off paying more attention to the foot to make sure that it's doing what it can. and and take the pressure off the 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 other structures higher up
1: so before we get too much further i do want to get into okay we we talked about how to open up the foot and the rear foot and i know you know with your wedges and your course is very reasonably priced and all that stuff is it's very accessible but could you just share a little bit about with the rear foot of the calcaneus specifically how do you know if someone has one is how do you check for a limited range there and then two what are some ways you go about helping that rear foot to mobilize to start moving and uh whether i mean i guess the the wedges being the easiest i know you've mentioned i think you could just roll up newspaper too or anything that's wedged. wedge but yeah. what are some principles of getting and restoring that rear foot motion particularly
0: okay so let's start with pressure so if you put yourself in a in a walking stance or a, a kind of small lunge with one one foot forward what you would want to experience when you bend your knee is a pronation of the foot and with the dorsiflexion of the ankle. And something to look for is a pressure change in your heel. So that pressure change when you pronate would, would travel anterior and medial. And so that's the, uh, the, the role of the calcaneus that is, is effectively rolling like a tire on a car rolling forward so the pressure moves up forwards towards the area that before you started wasn't actually on the ground does that make sense mm-hmm. so the, the role of the calcaneus is the pressure traveling forward and the eversion of the calcaneus is the is the pressure traveling towards the medial side or the inside and a combination of the two is a kind of diagonal line from your posterior lateral area to your anterior medial area of the rear foot now if you're already pronated you and you were able to tune into your pressure you might find that the pressure is already anterior and medial and that means when you try and bend your knee you won't feel much movement because you're already in that anterior medial position if you are have a rigid supinated foot then you might stand and feel the pressure in the posterior lateral area of your heel bone and when you bend your knee you don't feel it move anterior and medial because it can't (laughs) so in the same breath, if I, if I do a supinatory movement, do, am I able to feel the pressure change where the pressure travels backwards and, and lateral, posterior and lateral? So I think that's a really important element for people to consider when investigating rear foot movement. So we know that from a neutral resting position, it will travel anterior and medial, and then in response to that, will travel posterior and lateral into a supination and, and then come back to a rest in the middle. So the less centred you are, the more likely most people, 95% of people are more pronated than not. So they may not feel as much anterior medial movement as, as they could. And that, that's that's an immediate kind of sense that that we could actually do some good work with the rear foot here. Because the better I get at travelling anterior medial with my pressure, the more tissue I'm going to eccentrically load and trigger a contraction. And the better that muscle contracts... The less anterior medial, my pressure will be as I start to neutralise my rear foot. Hopefully, that makes sense. So that's a personal check that you can do for yourself. I offer what I call a pen test in my Wake Your Feet Up program, which is where you, you you lay a pen just on the ground in contact with your big toe and your second toe, and bend your knee and see if see if you can push that pen away. And you know, the vast majority of people actually can't which also suggests that there's, that there's some rear foot, there's the movements taking place at the ankle talocrural joint and not really taking place mm. in, in the rear foot, in the calcaneus bone. When you do bend that knee, you would like to see the back of the arch, the posterior part of the arch lower. And so placing a finger in front of the calcaneus in the back of the arch, you, that you, you should feel pressure increase on that finger when somebody bends the knee. So again, if that pressure is stays the same or doesn't improve, you know that the there's no plantar flexion taking place in the calcaneus. So if it's high arched and they 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 bend their knee but don't put pressure on your finger, the arch is not lowering, so the rear foot's not moving. And for mm-hmm. somebody who's quite flat, you you might have already have a, a good amount of pressure on the finger at rest. And if they but if they bend the knee. And you don't increase that pressure you also know that even though it's plantar flexed it's not plantar flexing anymore when they bend the knee so the relationship between the two can be improved and the final consideration probably is is a manual check so you actually hold the foot in your hand hold the forefoot and take the the rear foot in your other hand and simply try and plantar flex and dorsiflex it in the sagittal plane and and to check and feel how much movement is there
1: yeah and i've I've noticed with athletes who tend to have uh, lower leg problems like Achilles um, issues, for, for sure. They tend to have really limited um, movement Funny. in that, that heel bone.
0: I think uh, the most, um, I get it nearly every week at least, people are in contact with Achilles issues, Severs disease, bumps on the back of the heel, and they're always at the level of the TCJ. And, and, and it's simply too much Tailor accrual movement and not enough rear foot accompaniment and and that rear foot accompaniment is generally plantar flexion so when we plan to flex the rear foot the calcaneus where the achilles obviously attaches on the calcaneus so as i plan to flex the calcaneus the anterior part of that bone goes to the floor the posterior part mm. of that bone goes up so you get a shortening through the achilles at the very very base when and then it's lengthening really quickly at the dorsiflexion just behind the tcj so if that exchange isn't taking place, it all happens at the, uh, at the TCJ and starts to formulate these bumps and, and people's Achilles problems. So nearly always, it's a, and I think this was one of your questions, but nearly always, it's a, it's, a, it's a take the wedge, place it behind your foot, running in from, if 12 o'clock's in front of you, running in from 6 o'clock so the thin end of the wedge is under your heel and create something to roll down to simulate that plantar flexion which sends the pressure forward opening the joints on the base and try and get some length into that plantar fascia there so more length in the plantar fascia through better rear foot movement is likely to take pressure off excess lengthening in the achilles
1: yeah that was a game changer for me when i had achilles issues was just getting a wedge in the back of the foot and just doing a ton of just feet and actually i don't even think when i first did it i was even that terribly good at feeling Uh, maybe i was but like I'm, i'm definitely better now but just feeling that that calcaneus bone just tilt forward and what you just said there it finally i've thought i've thought about that a lot as the calcaneus is kind of that adapter that keeps the achilles safe when you're doing all these explosive things and that it finally clicked with me now that if that calcaneus stays in its in its dorsiflex i guess you could call it position where it's just stuck and then the knees going forward there's going to be way more lengthening. I mean, you know, it's not like inches of lengthening. It's, it's, it's millimeters. <laughs> it's, the, it's just too much. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be more lengthening faster of the Achilles than if that calcaneus could go with it. You know, if that mm-hmm. calcaneus tilts with the shin coming forward, even just a little bit, it still is going to save some of that rapid loading. And
0: so, Yeah, it's incredible that, you, you know, you actually, while you want lengthening the Achilles at the back of the TCJ, the, the calcaneus will, will roll in a way that, mitigates that length to, to some extent and that's and that's that's required to for an optimal
1: effortless movement yeah it's like the yeah. ultimate damper of uh yeah. it's amazing I, would, would you say yeah. oh sorry go ahead
0: no i'm saying it's crazy it's just
1: <laughs> the in our
0: lower leg biomechanics course the section on the gastrop which is obviously and the soleus which brings into the the achilles that muscle itself has got three different lengthening shortening relationships going in in, in each moment of the cycle gastroc um you know we just think they'll just stretch it but it's doing something different at the knee to it what it's doing behind the tcj to what it's doing at the contact point on the uh, achilles you know again just underlining the idea that the muscle does what the joints tell it we if we don't get the joints doing stuff the muscle will be at the mercy of the joints actual potential and that that muscle for me really underlines that
1: in going to kind of like the some of the nuts and bolts of getting the that rear foot to move, I was just thinking about this and I, I've done this before too is actually I'll take your wedges or like or a sock or something and like when an athlete's doing, taking their knee forward in a split stance, just trying to put something under the arch so they can feel it flattening. But I was just thinking, could you take like a pen, like just like the lengthening test of the whole foot, could you take like an end of a pen and put it like based on the front side of an athlete's calcaneus, like basically the the kind of the back part of the arch and then have them like take their knee forward and see if they can feel the, the calcaneus specifically kind of pushing into that portion of their foot or would you use yeah, sensation some way there to help them feel that calcaneus bone moving?
0: Definitely. Have, have you like just rolled up a sock or something and if, you know, if I'm there, I'll put my finger there, but if they're on their own, they can roll, roll a sock up and just just place it in the very back of the arch and just to see if they can actually compress it a little bit it's never about flattening it to the floor it's just can i get more contact on it so as a kind of biofeedback for uh, i'm actually i'm actually moving it but remember again um, the message for me would always be yeah if you you don't try so hard to touch that sock Mm -hmm. (laughs) and lose your fifth metatarsal they all they all need to still kind of be in play
1: yeah 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 so yeah you don't want to do it at all costs (laughs) don't do it and that's i like the (laughs) I like that's why I like the small motions too because I feel like the smaller ones it's easier to kind of keep everything together. It's like as soon as an athlete goes big, you know, goes full yeah. whatever, that it's easy to let yeah to let a. a it, it's simple.
0: It's actually simple mathematics. It, but if you do a big movement somewhere, then every other places will have to reduce to 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 maintain that. It, I, I write in what the thought I wrote about the idea of a hundred percent. The body always works at a hundred percent as a loose concept, so you can't add or take anything away from it. Uh, So everything moves in a a way that organizes that. So if I move too much there in one place, i.e. I take the number above 100%, so I'm now moving more than I should, somewhere else is going to rebalance and move less to bring that back to 100%. And that's a concept I've talked about quite a lot to help people recognize that uh, th- this is the body 's great exchanges it 's amazing, so if in your training you 're trying something too much there, somewhere else in the body will be like okay i don't i 'm not needed anymore and interestingly, the shapes that we talk about in the, uh, that we that we see in the gait cycle are recognized by by the cogs they 're all requiring of of the body to move each joint in a small amount to to make the bigger movement if any if anywhere, if in your spine you have excess movement in your lumbar spine, the rest of the, the spine won't, won't bother. You won't need to have movement in the thoracic spine, if that makes sense. So if one hip is uh, moving too much, then the uh, foot down below might just stiffen up to, to, to compensate for it. And, and you know these are relationships mm-hmm. in the body that, that we're seeing all the time. And often, of course, this is how we end up with people having discomfort, because discomfort could be in the area that's moving too much but it's, it's doing it for something that's not moving enough. And the part of the body that's not moving enough doesn't scream loudly to say, I'm the problem. So it never gets looked at. And that's where a good assessment is able to guide you into these areas. And you can see if I get good movement in that area that's not moving much, we can take the pressure off the area that's moving too much. And the person recognizes that instantly as a kind of relief. So big is not useful. <laughs> yes,
1: but small in all of the places, <laughs> it starts to create big. Do you notice that athletes who have higher arches that don't be able, that aren't really able to mobilize that, that heel bone or the arch has a hard time dropping that tends to manifest in the knee, a lot of inward knee travel in various movements?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a really nice insight. It, again, it comes out somewhere, doesn't it? If you asked a person just to rotate le- left and right and they had high arches, you could, you could simply see a, the femur rotating in quite a lot so if they rotate to the left the right femur rotates inwards but the foot not moving means that the tibia is not moving and you and then you then you go oh, that's that could be a reason for your knee discomfort Mm -hmm. in the event of it not happening at the knee you start to see a femur not moving and a pelvis moving a lot to the left and then they've got some groin discomfort does that make sense you 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 can you, you kind of go up the layers to find to find what's moving excessively for something yeah, in the same breath, exactly the same thing can happen with somebody with a with a, a largely pronated foot because the more pronated it is, the less movement potential it has, and so if they rotate left and the foot doesn't move, the tibia doesn't internally rotate, and then you can see the femur moving exactly the same way as it would have done with the high arched foot, and and that person has knee pain again. So it it really comes down to understanding the the resting start position is it capable of moving or not? And if not, what's, what's doing the movement for it?
1: Yeah. That's something that's been a huge, just, I guess, game changer really for me, the last few years is just seeing what, what joint doesn't move. If a joint doesn't move and then looking to the surrounding joints and be like, oh, that's why there's a lot of motion there. Yeah. Like, yeah. That makes sense. If you're
0: looking for it, you'll see it. If you're not looking for it, you'll, you'll, you, you won't see it. And it's a stupid thing to say almost, but it's actually yeah. the case.
1: Yeah, one one thing I've been noticing that I I'm I'm curious of your opinion on this and that is that I've heard I like lifting and squatting and things uh, but I've heard that sometimes when like high school sprinters for example who haven't really lifted weights get to college and they do start doing a lot of squatting like some anecdotally sometimes coaches will say that their stride length might have decreased or something like that and I've been looking more it's not to me it's not the squat. I don't even look at a squat as a squat anymore really. I try to look at it as a series of joint motions. And one thing I notice at least amongst uh, you know if that is the case something that could potentially contribute is I notice when some athletes do barbell squatting that they get to the bottom and their arches actually get higher <laughs> of the feet. So it's almost like they're squatting and there's no there's no pronation moment. It's all like it's kind of like they're moving but they just train the foot it kind of like you said just to work as with no opposition whatsoever. So it's like you're yeah. strengthening everything. But then once you get down to the layer of the foot, now it's not opposing anymore. And maybe I think you said like weightlifting and and human mo- body movement yeah. are two real oftentimes two very different things. <laughs> um, you're seeing oftentimes. Yeah. So do you I mean do you feel like I mean I guess you know it's hard if the if the weights max you you're going to have to do the strategy to not hurt yourself, but in most situations, you should see a flattening even in a barbell squat, right? Like you should see the foot flattening as you get towards the bottom.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, again, I think it's, it, it's going to come down to the amount, amount of weight and, and safety element yeah. of that. It, yeah, it's a conversation we, we've had quite a lot. What you'll find often is that the heavier the weight, the less pronation there is, the more there is this kind of rapid kind of knees in. Movement towards the towards the very bottom. This quick knees in before they come up. That makes sense. Yeah, like you probably you'll see it if you watch the Chinese weightlifters. They, oh yeah, and all the way down. Then this knees crunching together and up mm-hmm. they bounce. And if you think the, the knees going in is a combination of a of a of a flexion at the hip and an adduction at the hip and probably an internal rotation at the hip, all of which are going to lengthen the glute and hamstrings mm-hmm. and uh, gastrocs and stuff at the with the ankle dorsiflexion. So you have this whole extensor chain is able to light up when those go in because I remember the conversation about contracting from a lengthened position. So they get all the way to the bottom and they actually can't get back up if they don't drive the knees inwards to create length in the extensor chain so that it can contract to, to bring them upwards. And I think the heavier you get, the more and more of a requirement that is. The effect of going down now and the knees sorry, you said the arches rising the the lower they get, is that's most likely a cueing thing where people are pushing knees out towards the fourth and fifth toes. I think it's worth bringing in the pelvis here because, and this is where there's, you know, if you're a coach and you cue squatting, you'll have your ideas, Uh, but Mm -hmm. human movement is human movement. When when you anterior tilt the pelvis, it naturally creates a kind of internal rotation of the femurs, which is going to connect all the way down into a pronation. Of the leg, so there's an anterior tilting part of a squat, which which is where that should create a, a pronation movement in the in the squat, and again small to be to be most useful. So not a huge huge pronation, and not knees coming together or anything like that. The posterior tilt has the opposite effect of externally rotating Mm. the femur, which will create a supination in the foot. And so obviously sometimes the lower you get in a squat, the harder and harder it is to maintain the anterior tilt. You start posterior tilting, and then arguably you would then have a supination kind of taking place down there. But aside from all of that, what's important is if you're going to, if, you, if you're going to anterior tilt and posterior tilt, you are going to pronate and supinate. So you better be able to pronate and yeah. supinate um, with your tripod on the ground in order to get the most out, out of that movement. Because for most part, even if you have the best intention in the world and cue knees out over the fourth and fifth to create a, a rigid or supinated foot, most people could not push their knees out and keep the first metatarsal on the ground. So now they're yeah. on the outer edges of their foot without the contact of the first metatarsal on the ground and that is again not a supinated movement it's just an inverted movement so you're still using less movement in the foot and therefore having to do more uh, higher up in the chain for that so there's still the, the, the the element of optimizing the foot movement in order to do that where i do separate it joel is is if we go right this is your squat technique and this is what you should be able to do with your body. So we teach you to pronate, teach you to supinate, teach you to flex and extend your knees, teach you to anterior posterior tilt your pelvis, make sure that you can have a pronating leg and a supinating leg and, and really get the brain experiencing that. And then go and squat. That, that's where I separate it. So you go and do your squatting, but when you come off that, we're going to make sure that you continuously remind your body of how it, how it should move, how its opposition should take place uh, rear foot, forefoot, toes, pelvis, ribcage, skull. They've all got oppositional factors that are, are super important to consider. Most of them will get lost in the sporting environment. So we take them out of the sporting environment, make sure they're capable of accessing it, and then put them back into the sporting environment.
1: Yeah, that's, that's where I've gone quite a bit as well in the sense of, especially with athletes who have joint restrictions, using a lot of your like cog type motions or just lunges where athletes are experiencing full range of motion trying to get the rear foot going trying to get their foot to flatten trying to get the knee to you know the the leg to experience some internal rotation and really wind up and then experience the opposite and then when we squat it's yeah it's like i don't want to i'm definitely not going to coach knees out and i've actually gotten the point where like i if you're going to get in that position when you squat and i don't coach you like like if an athlete's supinating their feet hard at the bottom of a squat well Maybe we just, maybe that's not the right tool for you right now, like a deep back squat. Maybe we should be doing something else where you can not, where your body isn't just going to go right there. And uh, that's, yeah, like I I agree. I just think that because like with a squat too, like you don't want to anterior tilt hard in the bottom of, like I don't want to create that (laughs) shape change with heavy loads. I don't want to mess with that. So yeah, Yeah. I've, I've definitely gone in the direction of using more of your 3D cog stuff. And I know Helen Hall was talking about that when she was on the podcast too. Oh, lovely. Yeah and and um yeah I I love that stuff. Angus Bradley who was just on the podcast was talking about using that stuff as a warm up and I've I had an athlete uh, I was working with recently who we did a ton of that cog stuff for the warm up. We didn't even lift really and then he had said he later later a couple of days later he jumped like the highest he had ever jumped. And this is a guy who's already strong. So he was like already had a wow. huge squat and we were just good doing good. a lot of those um those type of it's
0: good a pe- feedback right there.
1: Yeah. For people listening too, I know those cogs, I, I, I'm sure they're in your courses. I know in Helen Hall's, the, the show I did that's on the Just Fly Sports, she has some videos too of uh, those cogs. So, those basically like just 3D, full 3D motion like lunges is yeah, the best I, have that I can describe it. a
0: video on my Instagram page uh, on the IGTV as well. Yeah.
1: So, I'll be sure to put some of those in the show notes.
0: I was going to say, don't you think that the concept of a squat being effortless is kind of overlooked?
1: yeah I, I agree I would agree with that and I, I would agree with that in the sense too of like like you were saying talking about the Olympic lifters, and it's not like a, when they're going max, it's not effortless, but when they bounce almost bounce off, out of the bottom, it's yeah. it's more just pressure and then letting the joints do their thing, like you were saying it's they're pressurizing yeah. the the thorax and they're letting the joints operate reflexively, like as they're supposed to, like you said, light up that posterior chain versus manufacturing it where we're forcing knees out <laughs> and now we yeah. don't get any lengthening and i yeah. know there's extremes like you don't want to squat and have your knees like hitting each other <laughs> but uh as long as the feet are are on the you tripod, keep the on, tripod the on the ground yeah, and that's yeah. not gonna happen <laughs> yeah the tripod's on the ground and you're good yeah exactly yeah. exactly i i agree yeah. with you with the squatting forcing,
0: effort holding squeezing you know all if you're having to do any of that then you really need to address your mechanics so that you can be able to drop straight into a squat it should it shouldn't be uh it's a great movement and everyone knows that but it, it it looks for most people a struggle
1: yeah yeah i i, I agree and that's i think where two like good strength coaches and i don't know if this was they were looking at it from a joint perspective maybe systemic but like the easy strength mentality in squatting and i've really taken this as just you're squatting you should not strain in a squat like it, it's it's And the human reward system is so driven to want to PR every time. I think that's what gets us is like, I got to do more than last week. But if you go inside your body and you actually are reading, like I'll, I mean, I'm 37 now. I've been lifting for 25 years. Yeah, It's like, I know what my body is doing to get that next rep. If I want to go for it, like I've done, I want to do a set of five. I want to do more than last week. I know fully what my body is going to be doing to try to get that last rep from a compensation perspective and what I'm teaching myself. And I'm like, no, this isn't, this isn't teaching my brain and body the right thing. And then mm-hmm. you have the easy strength mentality of leaving sets in the bank anyways from a stress and it's just, yeah, it's just the straining squat is not, it's not fluid human movement and I don't even think it's that something you want to adapt to anyways.
0: I'm hearing the phrase less is more inside my head and and anatomically it actually can be. If you're you're squatting heavy in that that effortful or strained place and not using 33 joints in your foot as an example, but you were able to then spend some time optimising your feet and put your feet into play and and actually took less weight but got more out of your feet, you'd actually get more extensor chain activity, which is what the goal of the squat was anyway. Yeah, a we- and, and a weird sidestep of that, anyway, is most people, a bit like your um jumper guy, um, is that if you actually get more joints active into your squat, you end up squatting more anyway. So that we've seen that countless, countless times. So most people are squatting or fill squatting in with with any kind of exercise where they want to lift more, but they're doing it on a on a tank that's full, uh, on joints that are not moving, on joints that are. Moved so much they can't move anymore and to optimize those gives you extra joints in the system which gives you more muscle activation in the system which makes the lifts easier Um, and so there's there there is a possibility of progress quickly through taking a slightly different approach and actually looking at your mechanics rather than just trying harder
1: each session which is the which is (laughs)
0: that's like you said that's the condition most people will fall into
1: yeah absolutely and it makes me think too about the olympic lifters not that they don't try hard from time to time they certainly do but generally i mean i know their average load in training is not super high relative to their winner at max and i mean i think it's a lot of it's just the nature of what they do as well but those i mean name me a good olympic lifter who doesn't have well-developed glutes or vmo muscles you know like the muscles that we're trying to to get to be developed versus People who just squat a lot and grind a lot, they might have strong, like vastus lateralis or a, you know, really tensed up paraspinals and back muscles. And yeah. so it's like letting that free flowing 3D action of how the body is supposed to move on the, the points of uh the, you know, the tripod of the foot and the correct points of contact and letting the body, it's like, hey, I'm going to let the body take care of this. The body knows what to do, you know, not trying to force it so hard and always be so effortful.
0: Yeah. I think there's a, there's a, there's a big element of trust there to, to- to recognize that the body knows what it wants and needs. But that, that's definitely a part of, of the work that I like to, to do. Trust the body. It's uh, Our fifth, fifth rule of movement is that the brain is hardwired for perfection. And so if you put the, you put the input in, it will find its balance point and it will find its uh, relationship between above and below. So what was too much and too little <laughs> starts to even itself out without, without much effort on our cognitive behalf. It's actually quite a lovely unconscious response to the good anatomical work.
1: Yeah. That makes me think about, um, a bars called it in the more in the very extreme, like athletic explosive and crashing the plane, like putting the body in perhaps an awkward position where it's forced to save itself reflexively <laughs> in the, when we're working yeah. the extreme explosive contractions. But I, I, yeah. I, just love putting yeah the trust in the body and letting it do the work for you rather than yeah. trying to like press over that whole system with this like manufactured, like I'm really going to rev up my brain and will it, will this out. And not that that's, I, I think will is, is critical, but, but trusting the body is really, really important too. hundred percent. It's got everything you need. Yeah. Well, Gary, man, we are going to talk about collapsed arches. I feel like that would be a whole other hour. So maybe we'll have to save that one. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. I feel like this is a good flow of a conversation and yeah. it's good to get this one out there as it is. So uh, well,
0: there's lots of concepts in there that will uh, help you make sense of a collapsed arch. Uh,
1: yeah. Leading up, leading up arch
0: doesn't, doesn't have a tripod. Joints will be too open, and muscles will be too long, and as a result of that, unable to experience their opposite. So, put the uh, put the movements into practice. Get a tripod on the ground. Teach the foot to move in the way it's supposed to, and you'll start to see improvements in in that area.
1: Yeah, hopefully. I will say I've actually seen that in one of the runners I'm working with already. It, it just we haven't done anything special with like you know her collapsed arch. We just have done a lot of what we're talking about, and just a lot of tripod and even just basic single leg stance stuff and getting yeah. a, an awareness of the foot and it's it's gotten better on its own like just uh, just through you know, those things if, if the as long as the foot is not flat because of something
0: else in the body then movement and work in the foot will will you will see the problem if if the foot is flat because of um let's say a, a, a neck injury, and the neck is held in a position that has encouraged the foot to end up being more pronated, you'd you, you need to work with the neck to, to get the result in the foot. So that's where some people are, you know, I get great results with one person, but not great results with another person. And And really the work is about certainly understanding the foot mechanics, but the foot's relationship with the rest of the body and everything is a whole body problem. That's where you really start to be able to to tap into like just a, for instance i know we're we're on time but i worked with a, he's a 14 year old kid recently and feet were flat pressure on the inside and he was having quite a lot of discomfort and it started to affect his knees long story short the the history was it was basically a, a birth where he was born facing the wrong way mm. pulled out with forceps and um I remember I was invited to look at his feet, but I said, it's not his feet. It's his, it's going to be his head. And so we did our, our assessment, our movement assessments, and there was loads of movement down below his waist. And then from, pelvis was, was moving, rib cage was moving less skull Wasn't moving at all. He could, he barely had an awareness of it. So mm. once we taught him how to move his skull in relation to his rib cage and created all that cervical motion in his neck, he literally stood up and felt the pressure change in his feet immediately. This is a 14 year old kid. And he he was laughing when he was walking because (laughs) he was saying things like, I'm using, I'm using the outside of my feet. This is crazy. And so, you know, this work is, is it's not just it's not just the quality of the work that we can. I never had to touch his feet. They began to self-organise mm. as a result of the permissions granted from higher above. Which actually, in fourteen years for a fourteen-year-old, he'd not he probably hadn't been able to move his neck properly. So that's what I mean by you. You can hammer the feet all day long, and if they don't change, it's it's because the foot's it's that's not going to give you the solution. You're going to have to find the thing. That is either holding the foot back or it's really possible that this guy was pronating his feet madly because the relationships if i pronate my feet i'll rotate my legs inwards i'll create an anterior tilt which can lift my rib cage and flex my neck and he was born with it, with it in, in and pulled out in an extended position and hadn't been able to flex his neck forever so there's a direct relationship between mm. the foot and the neck and for that kid it, it Played out beautifully. And his brain was hardwired to know what good foot movement was. We didn't have to teach him it. He just started accessing it because the permissions mm. were in place in that, with the whole body.
1: Interesting. Well, I have, have to start looking at the neck and then another, yeah. another thing to look at. That's always, I always enjoy that. What so, neck? things yeah. to connect. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's so cool. That's such a cool anecdote. Well, yeah, thank you for your time Gary. I know. Yeah. And, and it does make sense. Yeah. If we look at everything, the, the collapsed foot is just the next in light of the solid principles. Like it really explains uh, so many things that we see and uh, just being able to do that a little bit better in our process.
0: It's all there, Joel. It's all there. All
1: right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time uh, being on the show, Gary. I really appreciate it. You're
0: very welcome. Always enjoy it, mate. Always enjoy it
1: thanks for tuning into another show we really appreciate you being here and i know we all uh, we all leveled up our game and our knowledge with the foot with that one if you enjoy the show you can leave us a rating or review on itunes stitcher whatever you're listening to we'd really appreciate it we'll see you back next week with another great guest have a good one